all ninjas, calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. In this day and age, I know a lot of people are kind of pessimistic about the future of medicine. And you talk to a lot of doctors at age 50, 60, and telling people like, I, you know, if medicine was like it is now, you know, when I first started, I wouldn't have got into it. And perhaps, you know, young kids should, should consider something different. And I say like, I'm... I'm so excited every day for what's happening because I think, you know, there's a, a, a great movement changing to, to really help, really, really help people. This podcast is sponsored by the Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker You'll be glad you did. Hello, I'm your host and acupuncturist, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 158 with Dr. Rob Abbott. Also, welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in this episode, you will learn how Dr. Rob Abbott was inspired to get into Lyme disease, how he is learning to treat Lyme disease right now as a resident, and how and how he is applying his training as a functional medicine doctor to Lyme disease. Thanks, Aurora. As you all know, every journey through Lyme disease is different and cookie-cutter approaches just won't work. You need to fight Lyme like a ninja. And that's why each week we bring you Lyme Ninja Radio. Also, my favorite new section of the show, <laughs> segment of the show, is our Top 10 Cities update. And it's so exciting to look each week as to who's listening in from what corner of the world. And this week we've had listeners from Sydney, Australia, to London in the UK, Ottawa, Canada, neighbors to the north, and... Dhaka. Dhaka, Bangladesh even. Yeah. Crazy. Lyme disease is truly international. All right, Aurora, let's go through the top 10 here. This week, it was all U.S. Yes, it was all U.S. Okay. So we're starting with number 10 at Woburn, Massachusetts. Number nine, Medform. Medform. Medform, Oregon. Interesting name. Yeah. <laughs> number eight, Townsend, Wisconsin. You're making me nervous that I misspelled it now. See, well, it's just a weird name. Anyway, Seattle, Washington, number seven. Number six, Wilmington, Delaware. Number five, Hayward, California. Number four, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Number three, Morrisville, Pennsylvania. Number two, Portland, Oregon. And number one, Brooklyn. Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York. You can tell we don't rehearse these ahead of time. (laughs) 
So excuse us as we're reading through the list and trying to figure out pronunciations. And also, I probably should be wearing glasses at this point, but I refuse. Yeah. I have a magnifying glass in my desk for emergencies. So, So you see, I've been wearing glasses since I was 11, so I have very little sympathy for your pride. (laughs) <laughs> right and I've now. been watching you wear glasses since you were 11. 11. Yeah. And I don't want them. I know you don't, but <laughs> anyway. you need them. <laughs> okay, Bela's out here. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about Dr. Rob Abbott. All right. This uh, is from his website, medicinalmind.com. Uh, Rob Abbott is a first-year family medicine resident at the Virginia Commonwealth University in Royal, f- excuse me, Front Royal, Virginia. He graduated from the University of Virginia School of Medicine in 2017. He approaches medicine from an evolutionary and functional perspective and practices what he calls, quote, spiritually focused and evolutionary informed functional medicine. Thanks, Aurora. Here's our interview with Dr. Rob Abbott. Hello, Dr. Abbott. This is McKay Rippey from Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, McKay. Thank you for, for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you. I just got back from New York City yesterday with Aurora. We went to a conference sponsored by Mount Sinai. And they have a project they're calling Lime Mind, and it's a computational medicine project. And they invite, this is their second conference, they invite researchers uh, really from all over the country uh, to present their research and bring them together. I really think they're trying to move forward their ideas in terms of bringing big data together and sorting through it, whether it's genetic data and lots of samples or in one case, there is Geisinger Health out of Pennsylvania, and they have tons of uh, medical record files that they're trying to see if they can't sort out and figure out some patterns associated with Lyme disease. So it's, there are lots of people out there working about working on Lyme disease. It's pretty exciting stuff to be a young intern in medicine these days. I I find myself you know smiling every day, really grateful to be you know in this day and age. I know a lot of people are kind of pessimistic about the future of medicine, and you talk to a lot of doctors at age fifty, sixty, and telling people like I you know if medicine was like it is now, you know when I first started, I wouldn't have got into it, and perhaps you know young kids should, should consider something different. And I say like I'm. I'm so excited every day for what's happening because I think, you know, there's a, a great movement changing to, to really help, really, really help people. And, you know, big data is going to certainly be one of those things. Um, I, it's no, it's no coincidence that groups like Google and, um, some of these big companies, Facebook are partnering with, uh, with health and, and technology companies to, to actually, you know, be able to analyze some of this, some of this data. I mean, there's, you know, fascinating research. I we're going to a conference and hearing about, you know, being able to predict someone's risk of suicide based off of their Facebook posts. And now I look sort of may seem a little like intrusive or uh, kind of strange, but I mean, the, the way they were sort of going about it was trying to use social media and, and tagging certain words and phrases and being able to predict you know, people's behaviors or um, and in this case, sort of, um, you know, suicidal intention. So I think there is something to be said in this mass social media, mass big data world that's going to come out and, and really be helpful. So uh, we do have to be cautious because 
I think privacy and protecting our identity is also something that we can't just overlook. So it's an interesting balance, isn't it? So what got you interested in medicine? Yeah. So, I mean, to be honest, I was kind of one of those nerdy high school kids, sciencey. I loved chemistry and had a few of my friends who were more medicine driven. I really, I, there's no medical doctors in my family. Uh, my mom's a physical therapist. I, you know, I really, you know, had a lot of good conversations with her about kind of patient care, but it wasn't something that, you know, from day one, I was like, yeah, I want to be like my mom. I want to you know, be a physical therapist or go into medicine. And it wasn't until I got to college and sort of further being pushed by my my close friend and and roommate who he was dead set on medicine and you know his dad was an anesthesiologist his mom was a um, psychiatrist and you know he was going into to medicine and he kept telling me we're taking the same classes like you know you should go into medicine and but it really wasn't until after my freshman year my my grandmother my mom's mom you know, got quite sick and was battling cancer, um, sort of a primary kidney cancer, and then, you know, eventually sort of metastasized. And I spent about uh, a couple of weeks with her, sort of the end of life period with hospice and more specifically with her pastor, um, really reflecting on, on life and, and actually seeing her arguably at her most joyful. She had come to peace with kind of where her life and trajectory was going. She was like, you know, if I, if I somehow live through this, then wonderful. If I don't, I get to go be with my creator. And, and it was so peaceful to see someone in relative, uh, a relative state of suffering that you know, she was so golden and just uh, open to this transition in life. And I guess, you know, I was a little sort of naive, but in, in, in seeing that and, you know, kind of helping with some of the medicines and I realized, you know, maybe medicine is something I should try or, or think about. So how old were you? I was 19, 20. Okay. Um, yeah, about just had, um, almost 20. And I, uh, being very practical, I realized, you know, well, for me, I was like, well, if I want to do medicine, I need to get my hands dirty and actually see if I like it. Um, and lucky enough for me, one of my close friends who was an anatomy TA, so I was in an anatomy class, he uh, was like, you know, we're looking for scribes in the emergency room. And so what a, a scribe does is kind of so a lot of the electronic medical record um, is taken over now in, in, in medicine. And, and it was just kind of becoming a, a thing in the emergency room. And, you know, doctors were having some trouble with it. So they kind of hired these young, young bucks like myself to, to do all that documenting. Um, and it was very competitive. I mean, this is something, a position that all traditional pre-meds, I didn't even consider myself a pre-med, were interested in doing to get experience and get on a resume. And I was lucky enough to get a get a job there and basically worked there part-time through the rest of my college years for the next you know, three years and then kind of full-time during the summer and a so, period before So what was that like being in the ER? Were you up front with like at the nurse's station or were you back in the surgical suites? Or like where were you physically in the ER? Yeah, so physically, you know, I was right next to the physician, essentially, you know, 24 seven, we, it was a community hospital. So it wasn't like an academic teaching hospital with resident physicians or medical students or you know, students of really any kind. It was the physicians and the nurses and then ourselves, you know, and some of the other, uh, the technicians and people, but it, you know, it was an academic center. So it was just myself and the physician and we kind of had to work 
one work area and it was surrounded by the rooms, which is actually not an ideal situation because you could have someone like literally yelling from you, <laughs> yelling at you from uh, one of the rooms right behind you. Um, but I was, you know, right with the doctors and, and follow them around wherever they went. So I'd go into the rooms and I had my laptop and I would be typing away and, and sort of, you know, doing all sorts of oddball tasks, you know, the, the small things like getting blankets for people and, and depending, you know, and, and helping to run, um, codes and doing documenting and, and getting supplies. And it was, you know, right. It was frontline stuff. And, uh, I mean, I saw there, you know, I didn't want to do emergency medicine. It was, um, a lot of it was was depersonalized, and I get that the you know the ER physician is going to be going into the room and needs to have a quick assessment and and provide care because there's lots of other patients to to be seen and people were very efficient, but it still seemed a little depersonalized. And the other thing too was I saw a lot of family medicine, chronic care being carried out in the ED because people didn't have any other option, and that was a little you know disillusioning to me. I was just like this this doesn't look right. Like this is our community and, and we're having people come in with back pain and, and these other sort of chronic conditions that aren't being treated elsewhere and it's a burden on the system. And so I realized, you know, ER medicine wasn't going to be for me. I, I wanted to, to be in this space. Like I, I wanted to be a healer. It, you know, it solidified for me like this is what my path was going to be, but I needed to do something besides ER. And it, it didn't hit, hit me there that, you know, family medicine, or kind of community-based medicine was going to be my future, but at least that ER is probably not where you, you ruled that out, right? <laughs> yes. Um, and that in a community hospital, you're seeing, like, it's depending on and, and which can I ask what community it was? I think you mentioned it, but I, I missed yeah. So it. I'm I'm from the Hampton Roads area of okay. Virginia, so kind of the peninsula you know, near the the coast, and more specifically in in Newport News, Virginia. Um, it was. And this um, Bon Secours system it was actually, you know, um, previously a Catholic. Uh, it's called Mary Immaculate Hospital. So previously, you know, sort of founded by nuns, so to speak, but had kind of branched away from that. But right. and that's, we, we, have Saint, we have yeah. St. Elizabeth's here. And yeah. we just we just lost our uh, within the past 10 years. The head was a nun. And uh, that's like they're still in a religious affiliation. But it's I mean, that those days are long gone. They They are. Yeah. So, so you're seeing, I mean, when coming in the ER, you're seeing, you know, you're seeing people, drug overdoses, you're seeing alcoholism, you're seeing maybe some car accident stuff. And then you said all this layers of people who fell through the cracks and their chronic became acute over the weekend or they did something and they're really hurting. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the million dollar question in emergency medicine is, so what made you come today? <laughs> and you'd be surprised how many times people didn't really have a great answer to that. Um, or it was sort of along the spectrum of, well, I just got fed up enough. Yeah. Um, it wasn't that the pain was any worse or, you know, I had a worse headache or anything like that. It was, I just kind of got fed up enough. Um, and that's when you knew, like, wow, like this, there's a much deeper problem here than we really realize. So we met, you found this podcast and you I reached did. out and, <laughs> and, and spoke to me. So why were you at that time interested in Lyme? Why were you Googling Lyme disease? Oh, man. Um, well, so I am, as I mentioned before, I'm, I'm from Virginia and 
uh, I've since kind of moved from the the coast into uh, the Shenandoah Valley region. Um, since the time in Charlottesville at uh, the University of Virginia, now I'm sort of a little more north, closer to, to D.C., but um, Lyme disease is, is incredibly prevalent, uh, and it's something that we see quite frequently. And uh, so, yes, I, you know, I joke we're not Lyme, Connecticut, but we see quite a bit, and we also see you know, a spectrum of you know, Rocky Mountain spotted fever and ehrlichiosis and some of these other tick-borne illnesses. And as a healthcare provider, I, you know, it's important to sort of be aware of this. But I guess you know the, the true answer to that is I do take a kind of different perspective. So if I had to describe myself, I'm sort of a, a spiritually focused and evolutionarily informed, kind of taking an ancestral perspective, you know, functional family doctor. And so I've been playing in the weeds of chronic infections and, and Lyme disease. And I've worked with one of my colleagues in Charlottesville, who's a nurse practitioner, and she spends a lot of her time, uh, helping to treat people with Lyme disease. So I was exposed, I've been exposed to a lot of kind of uh, complementary alternative, I hate those terms, but, um, you know, treatments outside of just here's some doxycycline. And so, you know, I always find, for me anyway, to really get a good grasp. So despite that, you know, medical knowledge and even expanded medical knowledge working with her, for me, I'm, I'm a very community level person and I want to understand the experience of the individual and, and tapping into the symptoms and, and what it is that really truly will help relieve suffering and promote flourishing. And so I found myself resonating more to kind of find some of these social community groups. And I've always resonated with podcasts because that's kind of how I, I learned. So, you know, I can't remember exactly what I typed in, but basically it led me to your site, your community, your podcast. And it was immediately clear that this was a group that I wanted to, to get to know. And, and you were a person that I wanted to connect with. So cool. So right now there are hundreds of people yelling at their iPhone saying, how come the doctors in our area can't be like you? And that's my question for you. Cause did they, did they, in your medical training, including med school and, and your residency rounds that you've, that you've been through, is, does Lyme disease come up? Yeah. So like I said, it is very geographic um, in terms of its relevance to medical education. So having been in Virginia, it does get talked about. Um, and we are relative, relatively aware. I mean, we are basically taught that, yes, there is this bacteria, Borrelia, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce the, the, <laughs> the second part of it. Um, and Burgdorferi. Uh, that seems to be the consensus pronunciation. <laughs> Actually, one of the one of the researchers yesterday worked with, um, well, I think his name was Billy Bergdorferi, and uh, and so he pronounced it that way. So I'm sticking with that. Hey, I like it. Um, so we'll say you know this this Borrelia organism that is carried by a specific type of tick, and you will be inoculated with this bacteria if you're bitten by uh, one of these ticks that carries. Uh, carries Borrelia, um, and you know, after transmission, you may manifest a myriad of symptoms. We are quite aware that the classic uh, rash, the bullseye rash, you know, kind of we are taught that it really only appears in twenty to thirty percent of people, and for whatever reason, 
if you have the rash, then everything else is a slam dunk. So we don't care about labs. We don't care about um, any other kind of testing. You have Lyme disease and we'll give you some doxycycline and away you go. Everything else outside of that, besides perhaps a positive initial antibody screen, will will kind of be relatively disregarded because it doesn't fit plainly into our black box of this is Lyme disease. And so, I mean, no. And then if you go to, I've talked to other students from other regions where quote unquote Lyme isn't prevalent. It, it, it isn't really talked about as much. So you're not really going to be, it's not a huge focus in medical ed- education. Um, so, but we don't, we obviously, you know, don't get any sort of education outside of, well, what do you do for it? Okay. You give them two to three weeks of doxycycline and then you can follow up and even with treatment five to ten percent of people we're told will probably still have a sort of post-Lyme arthritis and it can be difficult to to treat and you know additional courses of doxycycline may or may not help that and but kind of beyond that that's sort of what we're taught and like I said it is very geographic dependent so if you're in a region where like I say quote-unquote Lyme doesn't exist then you may not be presented with these uh, with this information or or be presented uh, as well with some of the, the additional species there, like yeah, the Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, and being aware of some of their presentations and oftentimes actually more acute uh, illnesses. So hopefully that was a decent answer. It's a, a great answer. So basically, it depends on where your doctor went to school and probably when they went to school. And so what's the communities talking about? So if they're moving from another area where they just don't have a lot of talking about teaching about Lyme disease and other tick-borne infections, you're basically out of luck, you know, unless they pick it up through a bulletin or something like that. And so it's interesting. Most of what the fundamentals they taught you out at, you know, there's going to be other people screaming at the phone, you know, two to three weeks, you know, that's not enough and blah, blah, blah. And and I'm going to ask your opinion about that in a second. And, you know, I definitely have, have mine as well, but the rest is, is relatively reasonable, including that the rash is not that prevalent of a sign or symptom. Correct. That, and that's one of the, I've, and I've heard stories up here. So you think New York state, okay, there's a Lyme endemic region, but they were telling me yesterday at the CDC that they've recently changed how they're reporting that they used to have Lyme endemic counties. And so Mm, you could be next door to an endemic county and, you know, if your health department or your doctors aren't doing the test or diagnosing and reporting it, then you could, you know, like the ticks know that, that the border of Oneida County is here and they don't cross over, which we know, of course, is, is <laughs> preposterous. Right. So, so then the doctors in the neighboring county would say, or the county you're in because they're not being reported. So it doesn't exist here. And I've had local people with a bullseye rash be told it's not Lyme disease. It's a spider bite. Oh wow! Exactly, exactly. Wow. It's it it can be it can get really weird, and so interesting. It's, it's spider bite thing because that actually I don't want to interrupt, but please. Having spent time in the ER, that is the classic um, complaint from patients: is they'll have some sort of strange rash or reaction, and I don't know what it is, but people always want to come in and say it's a spider bite, and nine times out of ten, and perhaps even more than that, it's. It's not a it's not a spider bite, but that's usually what people complain about. So it's interesting how you just described the kind of a little reversal heel here of 
the clinician telling them it's that's a spider, a spider bite. bite. That, that boggles my mind. Y- yes. <laughs> that's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> okay. So now let's get to the doxycycline. So the two to three weeks of doxycycline, a lot of people say, look, on my side of the fence, right? Not, not the medical side of the fence. Borrelia is a slow growing bacteria. Its life cycle is quite long. In order to really interrupt that, two weeks of antibiotics is just insufficient. And do you have an opinion about that as a practitioner? As yeah, a clinician? So I'll give sort of two sides. So, um, so the first is having you know, worked with my colleague, a nurse practitioner who has this much wider open view of the disease process. We usually at a baseline, if it's a acute or subacute presentation, we will almost always start with, with four weeks of treatment, um, recognizing that we don't completely know the entire life cycle of the organism. Um, but somewhere in between potentially, and this is what I've been told from more traditional perspectives of, um, you know, 14 to 21 days, you know, probably closer to 21 days. And so we typically will start people, uh, with four weeks of treatment already knowing that we will be layering on and beginning an herbal antimicrobial protocol following that. So there's one level of comfort that Maybe actually to be, if you were just using doxycycline, maybe we should actually do more like six weeks. But we feel a lot more comfortable knowing that we will move to some herbal antimicrobials. So, you know, doing a Cowden protocol or um, uh, adding in some you know other herbs and, and products and things to support the immune system, that that's going to kind of give us a more broad spectrum treatment. Uh, now, what I've been sort of told traditionally, like I said, is this 14 to 21 days. Um, and there's two clinicians at my, my residency training program who, who are also kind of open-minded and have stopped running the reflex test because it's just, they recognize the, the false negative rate. The ELISA test. The ELISA test, yeah. correct. And they will just, and they were telling us actually just last week of how we need to, you know, if we want to do that, we have to, you know, making specific orders to get the Western blot assay. And, uh, he will, you know, he's doing three weeks of treatment, 21 days. Um, I guess he, you know, I sort of talked to him like, well, you know, what's stopping you from doing, you know, 28 days, but he gets that as a longer life cycle and that this testing is going to be a lot more relevant. And, um, his daughter had Lyme, so a disseminated Lyme infection. So, and she also had Babesia. So when it hits home, like in the family, you wake up to something a little different than, what might have been told to you in school. So, I mean, I, I, I'm really grateful that he, he is one of the only, like I said, clinicians I, I know is going around the ELISA and recognizing duration of treatment and needing to test for co-infections because he saw it firsthand in his daughter. So, um, and then yeah, how does he interpret the Western plot? Is he strict like the CDC or does he have a little more open interpretation? Yeah. The- so both, so both he, you know, myself and you know, my colleague were, we are not strict. Um, yeah. so, you know, there's, I guess some people say you need to have five out of eight bands. Um, we routinely are treating if someone's positive 
with clinical symptoms. Remember, we are treating a clinical picture. We are treating an individual. We're not treating a test. And so if someone comes back with sort of three out of eight, um, which would be, quote unquote, wouldn't meet the criteria and is relatively borderline, but they have symptoms that really match this picture, then we will we will initiate treatment. And of course, ask the individual on their spectrum of you know, financial capability and, you know, potential for compliance with various treatments, you know, what are they open to um, in terms of, of treatments? And, you know, some people say they will get that result back and say, well, you know, I, I just, I don't want to do the herbals. Maybe I'm okay with three weeks of doxy or four weeks of doxy. And then we'll kind of see where I'm at and maybe, you know, go from there. I guess secondarily, if someone comes back with, you know, the Western blot that's not, maybe only has one or two or even you know, the three or four, I also will, you know, we keep our eyes open for mold considerations. Um, and if we haven't, so we're, we're routinely testing co-infections as well um, and making sure they're not present, but, you know, realizing that there's potentially other players. So the problem with a lot of traditional medicine is one disease, you know, one diagnosis, one pill, and we forget that other things can be going on simultaneously. So yes, you could have had a car accident and broke your right wrist, which sounds like really acute and you're having all of this pain. And at the same time, you could be having a heart attack. Yes. So we don't pay, um, right. but we get so focused on the fact that you have this, you know, laceration on your arm and this fractured wrist. And so um, realizing that oftentimes the people that immunologically are more susceptible to getting Lyme are potentially carrying some of the genetics more susceptible to um, other chronic, you know, viral or bacterial infections and or mold. So it can kind of lead us down. And I'm actually, I'm seeing a couple individuals right now where we're sort of playing the game of Lyme versus mold and doing some of the testing, you know, to sort of see how we can more uh, specify treatment to hopefully, you know, help them. But keeping that open mind when it's not a super, super slam dunk, but realizing at the end of the day, you were treating an individual, a whole individual and treating, treating a clinical picture, not a lab test. You sound like an acupuncturist. <laughs> and I have very little understanding of <laughs> what you guys do. It's amazing. I, well, we I think love acupuncture. <laughs> basically, we attempt to think like that. And like you said, it's a, it's a struggle because that's not the natural way the brain works. We, we do want to focus in on one thing. And you have to constantly back back out and, and look at the other possible avenues, especially when things aren't going well, right? It, yes. It, you know, yeah. it's, there's, there's so many studies out there about the time that a physician engages with the patient in a busy, busy uh, family medicine setting where it's somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, five to seven minutes of contact. And within that, like 30 seconds before they interrupt and start asking their first question. So in 30 seconds, they it's actually like 17 seconds. Or well, something. yeah, I was being, <laughs> I was being generous. <laughs> my, my kind of rule of thumb is it takes longer to put on your socks than it does to make a medical decision. So, but the first question they're asking, and this is part of your training is differential diagnosis. So they've already got, and the differential diagnosis, it's not a wide net. It's already now, by the time they're asking the first question, they're trying to determine between a handful of related, related, uh, presentations. And once, once that cascade gets triggered, it's, it's tough to come back out of it because that's the training. Uh, 
You know, you're down. Doors get closed. Yeah, but that, and it's part of the training. And, but that allows you emergency medicine to get in there, stabilize somebody, keep them from dying, right? But in terms of these vague, like you said, multi causational, multi, you know, then you've got the, the terrain in which this is happening, meaning somebody's genetics and their lifestyle and, the emotional part of things, it starts getting really messy, really easy. Uh, and, and our ability to stay with messy is, uh, is, is tough because we, we want do not like to tolerate. No, messy. <laughs> no, you want it to be clean so you can act. And especially with medications. I mean, with herbs, it's a little more forgiving and there's a lot more variability there with same with acupuncture needles. I mean, when I say oops in my practice, nothing happens. You know, it's not like I've cut off the wrong leg or given somebody a really serious side effect. You know, generally it's like, okay, that wasn't the right point. Okay, no problem. Then we just back out and take another look. Um, so it's, so my next question for you is, you know, you were predisposed to having open mind. I mean, you have a website called your medicinal mind. You talk about spirituality. You're, t- you're not the normal doc. Let's just cut right to the chase there. You're not. <laughs> it's just fair enough. There are docs out there like you, but you guys are in the minority. And how does, and it sounds like the training and the knowledge you learned about Lyme disease. And again, this is a little bit of humble being mindful. You're willing to learn from this nurse practitioner you don't, you're not stuck up in your ego and saying, you know, I'm just coming out of medical school. My, uh, training is current. And, you know, what do you know? It's like the smart, they used to joke about in the, in, uh, World War II that the smart lieutenants coming out of college would just shut up and let their sergeant run the platoon because they knew what was going on. And if you wanted to stay alive, you would just let the, the experience take over. Uh, and you just kind of give your stamp of approval to whatever you thought was best. So it's yeah. a little <laughs> bit, so it's a little bit like that. It's like in the trenches, you're willing to say, okay, you've got all the experience. I'm willing to learn for you. So again, you know, kudos for you and your mindset. How do you take, how do you get, I'm not even talking about the open-mindedness that you've got, but how do you get the information about Lyme disease into the system? So just the basics that you're talking about, like the the rash isn't the Holy grail. Like people can have Lyme and don't have the rash. And then second question, part of that is what's all the talk about all these false positives? Yeah. So very good question. And we'll see what kind of answer I can come up with. So, the first piece about the education. Um, so I'll, I kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I am a very spectrum-oriented individual. So in being open-minded, you see things on a spectrum. You don't see black and white. And while a lot of people in medicine will be able to admit that there's no such thing as 100% absolute, they might live in the 99%. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, I choose to recognize the spectrum effect um, when it comes to, to most illness. And the problem is, in our training, spectrums do not help you make a decision. So you already alluded to as well, this whole differential diagnosis process and, and not liking the, the messy picture and what very clear, straightforward. You know, we like algorithms. We like flow sheets. Um, we like if you have this lab, this lab, and this finding, I'm going to do X. And it can be 
very, you know, it, it can be studied. These protocols can be studied and, and verified. And, and in that sense, it, you know, you're getting sort of standard of care. Um, but the problem exists when if you choose to live in the spectrum, it's not helping you make those black and white decisions. And so I know I've had a conversation with one of my colleagues. He's an ER doc with our kind of functional ancestral perspective. And he actually chose ER medicine because he thought it was the least egregious of all the, the fields because it's actually the most sort of of all the things that Western medicine does well, I think, you know, ER medicine is, uh, is one of those. So he was, he sort of chose that out of, um, because it was the least egregious. And we had discussions about, you know, what's, you know, what's the problem with the spectrum. And we basically came up with the idea that it makes making decisions more difficult. So, you know, people don't like dancing in the gray and it takes more time and energy to live in the spectrum and then make a decision from it. I, I found that, you know, general, well, I'm going to stop there just yeah. for a second. Is patients don't like it either. Yes, patients don't like it either. And But, but the problem is we've built a system um, that it's perceived that the doctor has the answer and will fix me. So it's, you know, the, the idea that there's something, I'm going to find this concrete diagnosis and that there's going to be a drug match to it or, or some specific therapy. We've we've created a little bit of a, of a monster. And, you know, so I have a lot of conversations with my patients and, and, and individuals when I'm kind of describing my approach or their condition and trying to articulate to them, we don't have a concrete diagnosis or if we do, there's a smattering of things, but actually what's underlying at these root causes are quite different than what this diagnosis or this label, you know, says. And we have options. Um, your treatment is going to be individualized, and I want to help you based off of this you know, bigger picture, and 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 getting people to see they can be engaged and they have a choice in the type of therapy. So I'm will be more than happy to prescribe certain drugs to individuals if I lay out the total risk and benefit of a treatment. Um, the problem is that takes time, so you cannot go through in five to seven minutes really and do a full complete, you know kind of informed consent in, in one sense of going through what are the potential risks and benefits of certain procedures or going through all of the alternatives and allowing the individual to decide, oh, okay, um, that seems like, you know, yet understanding your thought process of what is going on in these treatments, I think I can, I think that's going to fit best with me. Um, we don't have enough time in the traditional system to necessarily do that or people don't take the the effort to do that. And so we get stuck with the I need a clear decision-making model, and that's what my you know drug of choice is going to be if that's the answer I arrive at. This is you know it's got a little tangential, but um, like I said, we need to. And I'm finding that when patients, when I'm having these conversations, and they and they realize this, there's this degree of vulnerability and saying I don't completely know. Um, it's not saying I'm not thinking about you because usually I'm having a conversation about things that they've never heard before and they're like thank you so much like it, all of this actually makes sense um and i understand why you don't know that it's just one thing and it actually realistically isn't just one thing so people generally i'm finding were resonating when you had the discussion with them um but it's going to take time 
to break out of this traditional model. And it takes people, it takes you know, the doctors and the patients to to want to engage in that process to to step out. So you know, that's hopefully, a I didn't funny, like, anger, not, <laughs> anger your audience with no, that. No, 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 no. That's it's beautiful. And I always tell my patients whenever they tell me a story of one of their physicians says, "I don't know," I said, "Stick with that physician." <laughs> it's like that's yeah. <laughs> that's that's a good doctor. Um, cause usually by Probably the time they come, but, but by the time they come to see me, it, it, it does go to, I don't know, or they, or they don't like the treatment options. It's one of the two, either. It's like, well, we really don't know what's going on, but that's doctors. Not all of them say that they say they put it back on the patient. You know, you're hysterical. You need to go on Prozac or, or, or something like that. Uh, the, and the good ones will say, we don't really know. Yeah. Well, that's, um, so I've, I, I, I totally agree with you as well with this concept of being able to admit, I don't know. I put the sort of asterisk clause that needs to go along with that is, I don't know, but let's stay curious and see if we yes. can find out. Yes. That's the key piece. Well, and, but that's, uh, you guys don't have time to do that. And obviously somehow yeah. <laughs> you're carving time to do that. But I'm finding just some of these doctors just, they don't, you know, they'll say things up here like, I don't deal with chronic Lyme. And it's not because they don't care about the patient. It's like, they just don't have time to dig in right. they're they're already you know you hear story after story i don't know what's like in your clinic but i was just talking to uh, uh a woman who brought her son in for ah, i'm gonna forget the specialty but they're waiting an hour and a half in the waiting room you know and the, the yeah. son's starting to bounce up and down and uh th- he ended up leaving it's an adult uh son it wasn't a a child but even so he was just getting overwhelmed by the weight and seeing everybody else in in the waiting room and they're, they're not even waiting. You know, it's on the patient side of thing, you know, it's you go to the waiting room and you wait and then they check you in and you wait and then they put you back in the treatment room and you wait. And then the nurse comes and sees you for about three minutes and then you wait. <laughs> and yeah. that's the patient experience is you're waiting around a lot. Um, and if you're by yourself, you're in that, you can be in that, uh, the treatment room for, for quite a while. Um, and that's even after you've been brought in and processed. So there's, you know, there's this time and then the doctor comes in in a flurry and, you know, he's behind and he's rushed and he asks a few questions and orders a few tests and, and then you're done. You know, then you do the outtake with the patient and they, you know, make sure you understand a little bit and, then then you reschedule. It's like, wow, what was that? So what you're talking about is a completely different experience. Yeah. And it's, and that's where we have to, it's not acceptable, but we at least have to extend compassion to clinicians in this type of system, recognizing that when you only have that short period of time, realistically, the only thing that you're going to be able to do is order a lab and prescribe a drug and you just you aren't going to have the time and there's people that want to you know want to extricate themselves or they say they want to you know the amount of effort and time that they spend being able to to truly get out of that type of model is um you know we could debate about that but there's really well-meaning well-intentioned clinicians i've there are very very few truly malicious you know malintending individuals and you know, people do want to improve and they're doing the best that they can with the knowledge that they have and the time with which they can do it. Um, and so, like I said, we, it's an environment, uh, and, and yeah, a structure so here, issue. So, so here's my, my question for you, since you think about these things, can it be done in a hospital owned clinic? 
Yeah. So also interesting question. So, you know, there's some of my colleagues in, uh, the Fairfax system, um, Inova Fairfax, uh, wonderful clinician, um, Dr. Steinmetz in her clinic, they've partnered with Inova and they're doing sort of functional, she's been doing, you know, integrative holistic medicine for quite a long time and, and creating a new partnership with a hospital system, being able to create that. Um, so they can practice in the way that they want to practice and truly be able to help you know, people beyond this five to seven minute window. And, and the Cleveland Clinic having you know opened the Functional Medicine uh, Center for Functional Medicine and really pioneering to try to change the way they're caring for the you know the patient. So there are hospital systems that are opening to this and realizing well we got to do something different. Um, you know realistically for myself, I want as little barrier to my ability to help others as possible. So, you know, I don't, I don't see myself aligning with a hospital system. I'd like to kind of structure my own you know, business and being able to, uh, to make my own time. But that, that in of itself is, is something that you talk to any medical student or early resident, that seems like a huge burden. They're like, well, we don't get education about business or practice management. And if That's we do, right. it's about the traditional system. It's not yeah. about figuring it out on your own. And, yeah. um, and so I don't blame people choosing going to going in to join hospital systems because oh, realistically there's great packages. You get reimbursed, you get a lot of money reimbursement. And you don't have to think about stuff, right? You don't have to carry um, on a pager. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a big, was a big deal. It's, you know, they don't have to coverage 24 hours like you, the traditional doctor used to. Yeah. Now back to the kind of wrap up here back to what's the deal with false positives. And is that just only Eliza that the Eliza will test positive if you've ever had Lyme disease, whether it's considered active or not? Is that, is that what the false positive is? So I'm, I'm not entirely sure about the, the false positive. I mean, I'm much more aware of the false negative right when someone has me too that's what i'm asking you (laughs) Um, yeah so So you you need to probably do a little little more research i mean classically what we're told um in some of these tests is there's a lot of cross reactivity with other antigens so what the what the test is and you know the eliza is actually a relatively outdated you know old technology but it's essentially you know testing you know, an antibody, which is essentially your immune response to a specific portion uh, of, in this case, a, of a bacteria, Borrelia. And you know, even more specifically, it's it's testing a, an antibody to a section of, of protein, or what we call an epitope in medicine. It's basically just a sequence of amino acids, a sequence of proteins that is recognized by your immune system and creates an antibody. I think of, you know, our immune system is kind of the branches of the military and we have multiple different branches and different types of antibodies, but you know, it creates this antibody. And so what the you know test is testing for is the presence of that an- antibody in your blood, in the serum to this specific segment of uh, Borrelia. Now we know from you know, understanding concepts of molecular mimicry, um, that there is great overlap between some of these epitopes. And depending on the nature of the immune response, the, the, the antibodies may, may not be that quote unquote great and they won't, 
necessarily be as specific to the organism. So they may, one antibody might recognize Borrelia. It also may recognize, in autoimmune conditions, recognize pancreatic tissue or rank, you know, recognize uh, synovial tissue. And, and so that's sort of you know, one of the theories that's put forth about autoimmune disease. So when I see that, I say, well, it makes complete sense that there essentially could be cross-reactivity of this antibody to another actual organism or another tissue that's very similar to Borrelia. And so if you have that, then you would, you know, could theoretically test positive, but actually what your antibody is to is not Borrelia. It's to potentially some other organism with a similar epitope or even a human tissue, you know, an autoimmune, you know, um, autoantibody to, to human tissue that's, that's similar. So that's just conceptual. I need, I need to do a little more digging because like I said, I'm more familiar with kind of the, the false and negative, right. um, and which is like lack of an immune response. Exactly. That's, that's where um, we, we but, live yeah. in the, in the Lyme world is like people come up with a negative and that's either the test was done too soon or, you know, that just the, the IgG is not, uh, not getting triggered for some reason. Now, yeah. th- th- yesterday, I'm just going to throw this in your, in your, uh, back pocket here. Uh, a researcher, Robert, I'm sorry, Richard Marconi out of, uh, v- VCU was, t- is involved with coming up with, uh, Lyme vaccine and they've successfully put out a vaccine for, for dogs. And one of the things that he talked about was that when Borrelia is in a tick, it's essentially in one of its uh, passive stages. It's in a, mm-hmm. it's in a holding pattern. The, the blood meal, once it comes into the tick's body, activates the Borrelia. And in the activation, the outer surface proteins change. Yeah. So the, the, the OSP A is downregulated almost to the point of not being around anymore. And there's some OSP C that is upregulated. And so he, that was, he presented that as like, okay, that's, that's really exciting news. So the, essentially the bacteria that's inside a tick is different from immunologically different than what enters in the body. So if you have a vaccine or you're testing for these, uh, OSP A antibodies uh, that you may not have a lot of them in there. And I yeah. don't, I don't know what the Elias is testing for. So they went after the OSP C and what was interesting in the OSP C, one of the nice thing, nice quote unquote things about the OSP A is it's very uh, regimented. It's like, it's the same. It's like, we all have, you know, we all have different shapes, like human beings, but we all have five fingers. Most of us, mm-hmm. right. It's pretty rare not to have be born with five fingers. So, but the OSPC protein, which is in the active form, has all these variations. So it's as if human beings, you know, somebody would have two fingers and somebody would have three. So there's all these different variations on there. And in order to create a vaccine that works well within the human body, they had to figure out how to trigger immune response to all these variations of the C. So I'm just thinking in terms of even like Western blot, if there's this variation and this is the same strain of Borrelia. This isn't like multiple strains. This is the same Borrelia. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, and even within the Bergdorferi, they, you know, they start spitting out numbers. Like they have different uh, lineages of, of the, the Borrelia that they study and who, who's, uh, 
who's uh, breeding these bacteria and, and how they're studying. So they're different lines of, of Borrelia, but so th- they're getting deep into the weeds with this. And he was showing us a Western blot when they're doing this work with the dogs and they're testing for seven of these different patterns or, or d- different uh, proteins within the, the off sea and different dogs like would light up differently. So you could see even with a test like this, if you, if you've got the, and that's what his assessment he says, look, I think we don't have the right bands on the Western blot. He basically mm-hmm. came out and said yeah. that he said the Western blot he said, we're not testing for the right things. He said the testing, and I'm sure he wasn't talking about the Eliza. I'm sure he was talking about the Western blot. It's like the yeah. Western blot is a good test, but you got to test for the right thing. So he's got these, you know, again, they've identified these tiny little epitopes on the sea. I mean, it's, you know, showed a graph of the, the off sea protein and it looks like just this tangle of ribbons, right? And, yeah. <laughs> and, they, and they focus on the, on these tiny, tiny little sections of it. But that's the type of, and th- that's the type of thing, the sophistication, like the ELISA test is ancient. The sophistication of the Lyme disease is not in line with the science. It's like where the, the medicine for once is, is way behind the science. And it's going to be, it's going to be interesting because there were also, uh, some groups, uh, so he's talking about testing and, uh, and immunology and a vaccine. And there's another group out in UCLA and they're talking about really a wide net, uh, testing for all kinds of infectious diseases and they're using nanotechnology to sort through proteins. So there's some really fascinating technology and I'm getting ready to go up to get my blood drawn for the T gen test. Yeah. And I remember the, you had mentioned that yeah. when we were talking off show. <laughs> and uh so it's gonna you know the the, the testing the testing is gonna just change things ra- radically because the te- if they've got these broad the, the man, the researcher from UCLA, was, he had a great little picture. It's like two two men fishing in a pond, and one had a bamboo pole and a bobber and a worm, and the other had this giant fishnet and a crane. And <laughs> you know, and, and so that so if you can take a sample of somebody's blood, run it through a, a system in the hospital itself, in the ER itself, in the doctor's office itself, a laptop based item, and it's testing for a hundred different infections. You don't have to do the differential diagnosis. You can let the test run it. Yeah. And pick up those things. And now it's kind of the other way around. You have to say, okay, is it Lyme? And then we're going to throw our single, you know, our bands, our eight bands out there and hopefully we'll catch some of them. But if it's a slightly different infection or if it's a different strain of Borrelia, maybe we get two of the bands, but not enough. And then we're left with, hmm, you know, what, what is that exactly? You know, then you're back to the clinical gray areas, the spectrum. And I think the responsible physicians say, let's just put you on the antibiotics to be sure. And the the more conservative or cautious doctors say, well, we're not sure. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't fit the definition, the CDC definition of Lyme disease. So let's, let's see how you do come back in a month. But this is Borrelia. It's burrowing into your tissue. It's getting set up. It's. A month is a long time to let the bacteria run free. Yeah, no, I have you know a couple thoughts there. So the first one, and I'm I'm kind of making assumptions based off of the the lab testing. Thank you for for sharing that. But I'm guessing you know they inoculated these dogs with essentially the same 
bacterial, you know, the, the Borrelia species, the same strain. And what he was just describing was they manifested completely different yes. you know, immune responses on this test. And we, we need to step back and say, holy crap, like that's a huge, we need to, we need to recognize that. Look, they had the exact same quote infection, but their antibody tests were, you know, very different. Yes. And we go back again to the spec, to the gray spectrum and realize like, what's the reason why we like the ELISA? It's a yes or no test. So if it says yes, I'll treat it. If it says no, Western black gets more gray, you know, and we have to sort of, we've said in kind of arbitrary, like, let's go beyond the majority, let's say five out of eight, um, and, and trying to, to, to deal with the, the gray. And so, you know, the more sophisticated tests that we can get to eliminate some of that gray, but recognize that there is this variability in the immune response. And it comes back to, as you said as well, this concept of the terrain um, of the, the individual. You know, I think we, we really need to stay open, but I, I'm hopeful that some of this technology will take the decision-making onus off of the clinician and they'll be able to look at this, you know, some of these more sophisticated tests and be able to, to make, you know, informed decisions um, beyond just this sort of silly yes or no ELISA test. And then sort of secondarily, um, oh goodness, I just like totally blanked on what. The, the, Good. The, so the, I'm going to jump in and then you were going to yeah, remember. So there's another researcher, Nicole Baumgarth, and she's a veterinary uh, doctor and a PhD and she's at UC Davis and she stood up there and she's got this great accent. She stood up there and essentially said, look, we're doing these mouse studies and the condition of the mouse's immune system is more important than the load of bacteria in there. And that, Boom. that statement <laughs> went over like a lead balloon. <laughs> the room just kind of went, uh, what do we do with this information? They really, and the questions coming back at her were very along those lines too. It's like, what do you mean? You don't have to clear out the bacteria. She says, no, that's not what I'm saying. So she has studies saying that depending on the type of mouse, so the mouse model that they're using, that the severity of the Lyme is independent of the bacterial load. And that is, that, that's radical thinking. Cause really, especially if you're dealing with something with, uh, like, food, uh, food poisoning, it's all about the load of the bacteria, right? Mm-hmm. And if or more specifically, we talk about HIV and yeah. measuring viral load and some yes. of the severity of illness. You know, we're much more interested, or you know, the concern is on how what's the load of the the virus. Yeah, and so she's out there saying, no, 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 you got to look at the the immune system and the g- genetic or epigenetic condition of the the immune system and what's going on there. And so she really shows that you know this one type of mouse gets really, really bad. Lyme arthritis and the other one gets kind of mild. You really have to go in and dig and find the, the, the symptoms. And then the wild type, uh, you know, has, has barely any symptoms at all because mice in general are immune to the, the Borrelia's effects. Yeah. So like you just said, the idea I wanted to put forth came back to me. Well, well, while you were talking. Good. Um, <laughs> so this is, I have a, you know, this key point and some others that you know, I will try to make before we finish, but um, and coming back to our treatment modalities, and this once again is a conceptual framework. So I I spend a lot of my time trying to use conceptual frameworks to understand and explain things, and I'm less interested in memorizing facts. Um, yes, there's a certain you know bank of knowledge that I have, um, but I want to have conceptual frameworks because I tell people you know that our biggest issue is not 
not that we don't have enough information, it's that we have too much and we don't have a capacity to filter it. Um, so, you know, the, the best doctors of the future, those are going to be the most curious, the most open-minded, and be able to, when a new question comes up, know how to find a reasonable answer and navigate that. Um, it's not about having something immediately on the, you know, the, uh, in the top of your head. Um, so, you know, with that understanding, you know, realizing that if we use a conceptual framework to think about treatment, back to the risk and benefits. So, in the case of Lyme, we know we're, you know, we'll say we'll treat you with three to four weeks of doxycycline. What are the pot- potential harms of not treating? Now, we've already kind of talked a little bit about, you know, like you just said, you let this bacteria, we don't know necessarily the state of the host, but just say, you know, an average host, um, your likelihood of developing sort of post-Lyme symptoms or a more complicated picture, even with neurologic symptoms, is increasing dramatically without um, prompt treatment. Um, so I see that as like, well, failure to treat somebody who is infected with Lyme is is kind of a big deal. So, you know, that's going to push me to more saying I want to potentially over-treat than under-treat. Now, so if I'm going to over-treat, what am I treating with? In this case, it's doxycycline, an antibiotic. Now, a lot of people in sort of Eastern, you know, non-traditional medicine, will, you know, they, they, we look at drugs and we look at antibiotics as like, oh, that's, you know, those are just, you know, tools of Western medicine. I don't want any drugs. I, I don't want, you know, they're going to mess up my gut microbiota and disrupt my immune functioning. And I say, you know, that's that's a little nearsighted. We need to come back to the, the spectrum pic- picture and realize, you know, we can support the system while giving the antibiotic. Because once again, antibiotic is just one tool recognizing we need to support the terrain so that once we remove the antibiotic, you have a much more healthy gut and healthy immune system that's able to maintain its integrity and not be susceptible or have you know continued issues with this bacteria. Um, so one of the obvious things is being able to co-administer probiotics. So I think any traditional clinician um, is should be completely capable of telling individuals while they're taking doxycycline to take a course of probiotics. And so I typically will have people, um, I have, you know, various classes of probiotics that I prefer. Um, and which ones do you like? So I think, uh, uh, in three sort of broad classes, I think of one is sort of the bifidobacter lactobacillus, um, category, which is your kind of more traditional when you think of, you know, yogurts and kefir and traditional probiotics. They're usually, you know, these bifidobacter lactobacillus species. So that's kind of one category. The second are, um, sort of beneficial yeasts. So Saccharomyces boulardii is one of my favorites. Um, it has really, really great research, a lot of you know, research in, in inflammatory bowel disease, but a lot of great research behind it. Um, and it is actually not a it's, a, it's a yeast. It's actually not, you know, a, a probiotic in the sense that it's a bacteria. So oftentimes people who have issues with um, uh, can have issues with the lactobacillus species actually, you know, creating too much, you know, delactate do much better with Saccharomyces boulardii and, and, the, and the yeast. Um, the third are sort of soil-based organisms or the you know, stuff from the dirt. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the one that I really like um, in that category is, is pres- prescript assist. It kind of, you know, it's one of the only ones yeah. you know, out there really reputable um, of these soil-based organisms. So generally speaking, I'll tell people, I want you to be on 
two of the three of these, recognizing that they're all different classes and they're going to have a different effect. So, you know, usually I start people on a, a lactobacillus and, you know, and, and a beneficial yeast. If they're having more gut symptoms, I might do prescriptocyst and, you know, Saccharomyces boulardii. And like I said, if I have a concern for some histamine intolerance or a D-lactate picture, then I'll have them do prescriptocyst and Saccharomyces and stay away from the, the lactobacillus. But you can have people start on the probiotic while they're taking doxycycline. Right. And I tell people, you know, ideally, if you can take it two hours away from the antibiotic. So in the case of doxy, you're taking it twice a day. So I usually have people take the probiotic when they wake up um, and then take the doxy with meals. So like if you eat, uh, you know, a later breakfast or you eat lunch, you know, eat it with lunch and dinner and then take the the last probiotic before you go to bed. Usually if you do that, um, you know, you're taking the doxy with meals to prevent the, the GI upset and taking the probiotic when you wake up and you go to bed. Usually you have enough of that buffer window, you know, the two-hour window that you're not sort of necessarily negating the, the probiotic. Now, if you take it at the same time, it's not like, you know, it's not going to work. But um, I think ideally you know, taking it away from the antibiotic is, like I said, is ideal. Um, and so that as a baseline Outside of doing anything else, we should be doing that as you know, traditional clinicians, as non-traditional, you know, any type of clinician, we should be telling our patients to do that. And, and I have people continue on the, the probiotic regimen for at least three months. So if you have a four-week course you know, or an eight-week course, it I, doesn't matter to me. I want you on that you know, probiotic regimen for three months. And then I, I usually reassess and typically we'll actually switch. Um, we'll replace one of the classes and sort of introduce something and do that for three months. And then at that six-month mark, kind of see where we're at and see, you know, supporting with fermented foods and um, sort of, you know, food-based prebiotics, probiotics, you know, outside of you know, actually doing a supplement. But we should be doing that during treatment as a baseline for anyone who we're treating. And if you do that and taking the doxy with the food, you can mitigate some of the, you know, most of the harmful effects on the gut microbiome. You can prevent some of the adverse effects of the nausea and the GI upset um, with the antibiotic itself. And like I said, it's um, trying to balance the risk and benefits of the the drug. Um, the other sort of piece that you know people talk about with doxycycline is the photosensitivity. So I recommend to my patients, I want you to have early morning and l- later evening light exposure on no sunscreen because I want you to make vitamin D. I want you to get the benefits of the sun. If you're going to be out during the uh, main part of the day, then you know having a um, zinc oxide-based sunscreen uh, to use to protect your skin, um, I think it is very important. Um, so, but recognizing that if uh, I, you do need some, you know, 15 to 25 minutes, depending on your skin color and latitude of, you know, light exposure in the morning and the evening, preferably to be able to make the vitamin D. But using the sunscreen, if you're going to be out in the middle of the day, um, the zinc oxide base are the ones that, you know, I seem to prefer. Um, and uh, wearing that, like I said, in the middle of the day to, to try to prevent the, the photosensitivity issues, recognizing that all of these things may, you may still have it still may not prevent all of this from happening, um, but that it, it will at least potentially mitigate or lessen the likelihood of having a bad reaction. And then just to even add this in, the cost of doxycycline as a drug compared to other drugs, it is dirt cheap. <laughs> and uh, it is it is so cheap. So in terms of a cost of treatment, you compare that to a Calden protocol or these other things. And not that I don't want to do those, you know, depending on the patient, but it is relatively inexpensive and, like I said, very simple to do. So, um, so that was an example of, you know, for a certain treatment, a certain drug, 
what are things that I can do to increase its efficacy, decrease the risk of, uh, of the drug itself, um, and support the, the body through that period. Um, and so, you know, I think we need to use that framework for a lot more of our treatments. Um, I know myself, like in this case, or other cases where I'm going to be prescribing drugs that have potentially very adverse side effects. So, you know, other courses of antibiotics or steroids, things like prednisone, I want to have as much information about the individual and the condition that I'm supposedly treating and discuss that with the individual up front um, uh, before I start. Like you kind of mentioned, if, you know, if I'm just going to do some herbs or, you know, like an herbal protocol for some you know, gut dysbiosis and do some probiotics, I don't necessarily need extensive testing to verify or to have a degree of comfort um, because the potential risks of this are very, very low. Um, but the potential risk of a course of prednisone is much, much higher. So I want to be you know, quite sure. I want to have a lot more information in my toolkit to know what's going on for this indiv- individual and have the discussion of what potentially could be the things that uh, the adverse effects of this. But do we have enough uh, of a reason to to use it in this you know in this instant? So, uh, might have been a little too nitty gritty detail, but I want people to to see that and as clinicians, obviously, but also as patients to recognize there are things that we can do and discussions that you can have with your doctor. It's okay to ask them, you know, because they you know ask them about side effects because sometimes they'll just say, well, just look at the back of the you know the, the drug and that's not sufficient because they have to list every potential thing and that's just you know and you listen to commercials and it's scary um, but you know ask the clinician what are the potential you know downsides and what are the things that I can I can do to potentially mitigate the risk of having some of those negative effects um, those are things you can ask your clinician they may not know they may not know that's okay but you can at least ask and you know do some of that research yourself so i'll, I'll stop there because i was really long-winded <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of that, I know you have to go to work and I need to go to work too. And you've been very generous with your time. How can people link up with your website and your podcast? Yes. So my page is called A Medicinal Mind. Um, you can find me at amedicinalmind.com. The name kind of, I kind of took it from a beautiful mind and realized that medicinal embodies this whole area of healing and and a lot of my focus is sort of more in mindfulness and reflection and spirituality and so a lot of things you'll find on my site aren't nitty-gritty science it's more poetry and um and meditations and, and blog posts kind of looking into the human experience and i have a podcast um of the same name of medicinal mind you can find that on the webpage as well um i'm also in you know in itunes and, and google play and trying to have a, a mixture of of folks on there, um, both medicine and sort of kind of non-medicine, you know, more reflective and meditation and just trying to have a different conversation. Um, and so please, you know, come and, and check me out. I'm on some of the social media stuff too. We have, you know, Facebook and, and Instagram. I don't, I'm terrible at that. I have a close friend who tries to at least get a, a presence out there for us. So she does such a wonderful job. Um, and uh, if I would, you know, direct you to one, one thing on my page, I do have, in terms of medicine related, I, uh, I created a, an ebook back in March. Um, it's called sort of the ultimate integrative and functional medicine education resource. And essentially it's a categorization across different 
I call them learning styles or media types of, you know, blogs, podcasts, books, video presentations, conferences, trainings within the spectrum of sort of integrative health, functional medicine, and this ancestral uh, perspective, recognizing that I was getting tons of people asking me, you know, where did you learn all this? Because you obviously didn't learn it in traditional medical school. And I was like, I need to make a repository, you know, a dynamically changing repository of some of these resources, the you know, highly vetted and, and top quality resources, but organize it, recognizing that people like myself, you know, some of us like to listen to stuff. Some of us like to read. Um, some of us like to watch. Some of us like to be in group and learn together at a conference. Um, so you can go to, it is under the heading Food for the Mind, Resources for Health, it's a one-click download. I'm not asking for your email. You can totally sign up to follow us. We do a kind of weekly review, brief letter about what we do each week. Um, but one-click download on the Resources for Health page to get that ebook. There's, um, like I said, there's tons of resources there. I'll be updating it at the beginning of the year and expanding things um, further to, you know, encompass more helpful resources. And I've been using it, you know, I've been using it as a prescription pad of sorts with patients saying, this is your condition. I want you to learn more about, you know, if you're curious to learn more about autoimmunity, check out this book and maybe, you know, these recipes or um, this podcast. And, you know, there's something there for you. Don't try to do everything there, but um, in, uh, uh, there's certainly you know, a wealth of resources there. And so um, please, you know, check that out and, and share it with your family and, um, and, and explore some of that. So it, it's helped me to stay curious and to at least disseminate some of the, the ideas that I've come across, you know, outside of my traditional training. Beautiful. I just downloaded it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the, and the photos in there are all from, uh, I have a twin brother, fraternal twin. He amazing photographer. He's kind of a naturalist, environmentalist, all the pictures in there from him. We, you know, made the ebook ourselves, not knowing what, I, I don't know how to, you know, to, to make an ebook, but we, we somehow made something, you know, out of this technology and so all the pictures there yeah. are, are his. And so it's meant to be, you know, um, kind of enjoyable to go through. And you can, um, the beginning has an introduction too of how you can start this journey, how to maybe reflect a little bit about what you want to learn and how you learn best and what are your intentions. So I, um, I encourage you too to maybe go through some of the, the introduction before jumping to the, the resources because it may help to elucidate what, uh, what track you might want to take. So, um, so yeah. Beautiful. Thanks so much. No, thank you. This was so much fun and This was a great interview, and there was something he said in the beginning that just stu that just stuck with me. In is that uh, the point at which people go to the doctor is they got fed up, and that was just a just a succinctly a well said comment on human nature, basically. Uh, it's the truth. It, it absolutely is the truth. And as much as I, I, I wish that uh, preventative medicine was more a thing, it's like humans don't really work like that. Or we're not trained to work like that. At well, the we very... know lots of Lyme people are really fed up yeah. with good reason. And they go from doctor to doctor trying to relieve their fed upness. Yes. Lao Tzu, <laughs> Lao Tzu said thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, that the wise person is sick of being sick. So being fed up is really a 
a motivation. Yeah, it's the catalyst. A state of mind needed, yeah. a catalyst to move forward. And so if you're feeling fed up there, just embrace it and use it to keep searching to find the people that will help you or the protocol that will help you or the herb. Don't settle. Mm-mm. Don't give up. Don't embrace the fed upness. It's it's moving you forward. Yes. It's a natural part of healing. Yes. Matter of fact, it may be the beginning of healing, as Dr. Rob says. Yeah. All right. If you have any thoughts about that, Dr. Abbott's interview, Aurora's comments, or Lime Ninja Radio in general, just send an email to us at feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can also leave a review on iTunes. Oh, yes. Please. Yes. I know it's a little bit pain in the neck, but if you, especially if you've got the app, mm-hmm. the iTunes podcast app or an yes. iTunes itself on your iPhone, navigate over, search for LimeNinjaRadio.com, navigate to the section and you'll see a tab, a little button to leave a review. Please leave a review. Yeah. It helps us get found. It helps people not in the know discover Lime Ninja Radio. And as you know, we've got 158 now interviews. This was number 158, right? Yes, there was. It's a great catalog of information. There are a lot of experts here sharing a lot of knowledge. And there's something for everybody. (laughs) Experience and hope. That's for sure. (laughs) Okay. Oh, and the other thing is, if you haven't tried the Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker and gotten your Lime score, head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com forward slash tracker. It's a great tool to map your progress on your Lyme journey. Again, on a monthly basis. On a monthly yeah. basis. Yep. LimeNinjaRadio.com forward slash tracker. T R A C K E R. Yes. All right. Also, if you like what we have to say and you want to hear a little bit more, I put out a weekly list of. News from the Lime world and kind of headlines. Um, so, what did you discover this week in your search for the weekly ninja nuggets? This week, uh, my favorite one so far, just because the headline made me laugh, is "Is biodiversity beneficial to human health?" Question mark. Maybe not. Really? Yeah. Well, I'm gonna have to make sure I read that ninja <laughs> nugget. And if you want to get the Ninja Nuggets, again, there are five fabulous headlines from the week's Lime news in the Lime community. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and you'll see the, the main page there, LimeNinjaRadio.com, and you'll see a pop-up for the Ninja Nuggets. Okay. Just give us your email address and we will put you on the list. All right, Aurora, thanks for putting that together every week. I appreciate it. I like reading all the cool stories that you find. And last, as you Lime Ninjas know, the podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja Fact of the Day. Everybody knows the speed of light. Did you know that only ninjas know the speed of darkness?
Lyme Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lyme Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lyme Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lyme Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.